We're in Mark's Gospel, and uh, it is chapters 11 through 13 that are describing the reasons why people reject Jesus. We noticed last week that what you see, there are people who have dishonest hearts. That's one of the big factors in rejecting Jesus. And as we study this this morning, you're going to see the same thing. You're going to continue to see a dishonesty uh, by those who approach Jesus. And you can imagine the challenge and the difficulty of that is coming to Jesus. And this is the kind of people that you, you deal with. You see that early on is in our readings that, that we had here this morning. You'll notice in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they, which would speak of in the last paragraph, the chief priests and the elders and the religious leaders, they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Uh, There is nothing more enjoyable than having people listen to you whose sole purpose is try to catch you to say something wrong. (laughs) I'm sure you've probably experienced that. They're not interested in truth. They're not interested in an honest discussion. They have started with a preconceived conclusion. I don't like you. I don't like what you have to say. And therefore, everything you say or do is passed through a lens not of honesty, but is passed through a lens of, let me see if I can catch you in saying something that I don't like. Something that I think you're going to say that is wrong. It's not an honest heart. That's what you say. We're going to come and we're going to try to trap him. Let's see if we can come up with something that we can catch him in his words. We can get him off because he's going to say something. We're going to go, aha, that shows that we don't like it. That doesn't follow our preconceived idea or our preconceived notions or doctrines or understanding. That's how they come to Jesus. And they say in verse 14, teacher, we know that you are true. Now, do you catch the irony of that? Okay. <laughs> now, here we come to trap you, and we know you are true, and that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So we're going to try to trap you, and let's start with some flattery. We think you're amazing. We know that you don't care what people think, and you truly teach the Word of God, and we know that they don't believe a bit of any of that. They're just saying that. This is a trap. We're going to you know, smooth them over and butter them up and we're going to get them on our side. We know that you always speak the truth and you would never deflect anything and you're always honest in your words and true and you don't care about other people's opinions. And so we really want you to answer this question because you're so true and honest and don't care about opinions. <laughs> Very sinister. And so you notice their question then at the end of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now the reason why they think they've got a great question on their hands when it comes to Jesus is because If Jesus says, don't pay the taxes, which was certainly part of the national fervor of the day, a hatred of the Roman Empire and the Roman occupation over Jerusalem and in their land, which certainly was a popular notion of we shouldn't be paying taxes to Caesar, to the Roman Empire. The problem is that would set you up as a lawbreaker. 
You would be advocating break Roman law, which they would have loved for him to say that. And so that's one of the angles that they have. And if he says, uh, no, you need to go ahead and pay your taxes, then he's going to become extremely unpopular. Nobody wants to pay their taxes to the Roman Empire. They absolutely despise Caesar, despise Rome. And so they believe they've got a question to easily trap him. Yes or no is a major problem. If he says yes, he's ruined. If he says no, he's ruined. And so they've got him set up, they think, in a way that they are not going to be able to get out of this. And notice what you have there in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy. (laughs) So we have verse 13, the narrator revealing this is a test. Nothing honest in this questioning. They are coming with a preconceived dishonesty. And now verse 15, Jesus is fully aware of that, knowing what they're doing. This is not an honest question about, you know, we don't know about this nationalism and taxes and how we should deal with all of this. They're coming and they and Jesus knows their hypocrisy. He says in verse 15, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Let's discuss that for a minute. Bring me a denarius. And he simply then asked the question, whose image is on this? And the image that would have been on that is that one. That's Tiberius Caesar. And he even says, what's the inscription on it? Theoretically, that's supposed to work on a screen. You know, you buy one of these clickers that say, yes, it even works on television. So look how great that's working right there. Uh, (laughs) You notice if you move it from right to left, if you start at the right side of his neck, that's Tiberius Caesar, T-I, so Tiberius Caesar. And then it goes all the way around and it simply says, son of the divine Augustus. So he is setting himself up as one of the sons of a god. Augustus is considered the god. He is son of the god. He is Tiberius Caesar. The right side says high, high priest, Pontiff Maxim. So there is what this coin would have looked like. Give me a denarius. Here's the coin. Whose image is on it? Caesar. <laughs> And so a simple question then, well then, what are we going to do with that? And he simply says, give then to Caesar what is Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are his. Essentially, give what the Roman Empire asks. Obey the laws of the land. Pay the taxes. You are under their authority. You are under their rule. Caesar is in charge. You see his image on the coin. And therefore, you are to do the things that Caesar says. It's what Jesus says in the rest of that that is, I think, the most startling and why the crowds begin to be astonished and are amazed at Him. Because He says there, and to give to God the things that are God's. Now, I'd for you to consider for a moment how you would answer that. Here Jesus says, I want you to give to God the things that are God's. And you might answer the question, well, what belongs to God? You say, well, everything belongs to God. Uh, That's true. But I want you to frame this in terms of the imagery, and I use that word, of what Jesus just did. Whose image is on the coin? Tiberius. 
So therefore the coin belongs to Tiberius. Whose image are you? God's. That's what Jesus is doing in this play of imagery. Show me the image. Because he could have just said, you know, we'll give to Caesar what's Caesar. Why does he want the image? Because whose image is on it is who you belong to. And so the coin belongs to Caesar. But guess what? You are made in the image of God. And you belong to God. You belong to Him. And the whole idea that Jesus then asserts is that God has rights over us. We live in a time right now that we absolutely hate this. To suggest the idea that God has rights over us. We disagree and we resist this truth as human beings. This cannot be. We just resist it, resist it, resist it. God, nobody has charge over me. I am my own person and I can do whatever I want to do. This is why today in our culture we have this challenge against all authority right now. So I can do whatever I want to do. And who is anybody to say they have power or authority or right over me? And we shake our fist at authority in our culture right now. And here you have Jesus going, well, let's let's settle that. <laughs> all right, who's calling? Tiberius is going. His face is on it. All right, then that's his. And whose image are you made in? You're made in God's image. And that means that you are made by God for God. This is a very important life principle for those who are followers of Jesus. It is a powerful message that God gave from the very beginning of all creation that we were made in the image of God. And by being made in the image of God, that means you belong to Him. That means He has rights over us, that He is in charge of us, and we must give to Him what belongs to Him, and that's us. That's our very being. That's our very all. That's everything about us belongs to Him. He owns us, and that's a good thing. And it's important because that we would remember that so often we live our lives as if something else enslaves us or something else owns us. We are made in the image of God. We belong to God. We're not made by our spouse for our spouse. We're not made by our children for our children. We're made for God. God is the everything. God's who to whom we owe our allegiance. Now, I want you to hold that point in mind. Because we're going to notice in these three paragraphs how these three flow together in this big picture. The first big picture here is the idea of we belong to God. And that is something that is highly resisted. We are made in His image and thus He has rights over us. Now, you will notice that this just keeps flowing and all of these people who keep running to Jesus and trying to trip Him up, trying to find a way to discredit Him. Remember what we saw back at the beginning here where we're only a couple of days from His his crucifixion. We are only a couple of days here from the time that He is going to be betrayed. You notice now verse 18 of Mark 12. And the Sadducees came to Him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked Him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife and but leaves no child, the man must take of the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. 
in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. You have to love this. So here we have the Sadducees, and they go, let us have a crack at Jesus. Okay, the chief priests and the scribes, they've all failed. The Pharisees and the Rhodians just tried, and they failed. Sadducees turn. All right, we're going to discredit Jesus because we have the linchpin argument that no one will be able to settle. And what they use is the law of Moses. There's a provision in the law of Moses for if a widow doesn't have any children, how is she going to be taken care of? Remember, no social security, uh, no retirement plan, (laughs) no provisions whatsoever. Your husband dies and you have no children. Back in ancient Near Eastern times, your children were your retirement. I think we should bring that back. All their work, you can just take us all the way on into glory. It'll be fine. That's the way it was in ancient Near Eastern times. So here's a situation where the wife loses the husband, becomes a widow, God puts a provision in. Then the brother would take over those rights and produce an offspring so that she would have a child to take care of her. Notice they do an illustration. Let's just take that to the extreme. That happened seven times. She is just killing guys left and right. Seven husbands are dead. And now here we are in the resurrection. We're all together in eternity. Whose wife does he does she belong to? You know, they're like, we got you. you know, how are you going to be able to explain that? And this is their, their hypothetical. And what they're doing is this is a way to disprove resurrection. She can't be possibly married to all seven guys in the resurrection. So how can you say there is a resurrection? All right. Jesus answered verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they are neither married or given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What a great statement that Jesus makes here. Isn't this the reason that you are wrong? Because you do not know the Scriptures. And you do not know the power of God. Now I want you to think about what Jesus said. Because these Sadducees obviously know the Scriptures. In fact, they were just using the Scriptures to make their point. They're using the law of Moses and saying, when a wife loses a husband and there's no offspring, that's what the law of Moses says. They know the Scriptures. I want us to be startled by the recognition that there is a way to know the Scriptures and not know them at all. That sounds weird. That's what Jesus just said. Because they know the Scriptures. They can quote the Scriptures. They're building doctrines off the Scripture, like this one. We've got seven uh, husbands dead. There is a way to know the Scriptures. And actually not know the Scriptures at all. And not know the power of God at all. There's a way to memorize this book. 
to know everything that it says, to have all the doctrines, to have all the teachings, to know where things are, where you could be, you know, the Bible trivia master and quote where everything is and know exactly where it's at and not know anything about it at all. And really, ultimately, not know anything about God. You're quite wrong because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. What a slap. You think you know, but you do not know. Now, I wanted us to consider in this section for a moment the question that Jesus is ultimately posing of, do you really understand and know the power of God? Do you really understand the Scriptures and really know who God is? To understand that power, what He's all about, what this is all about. I would imagine one of the things that's pretty easy for us to do is we could probably consider all the crazy and silly teachings that have ever come along that simply ignore the power of God. You know, we try to make up doctrines that put God in a box. Therefore, God cannot act. You know, one of them reminds me of this is like, well, it's not possible for all of us to know God in heaven because... If we, I mean, know all of us together in heaven because there's going to be people that we're going to know that's not there, so that's going to make us sad. So that means we can't know each other in heaven. Or maybe God has power beyond that somehow. We try to create doctrines where we shove God in a box and go, well, God can't operate outside of this box. And so therefore, I've got the winning doctrine, I've got the winning idea, I've got the winning argument. It happens all the time. You know, there's arguments about the divinity and humanity of Jesus. How is he human and how is he God at the same time? Let's split churches and have arguments over the truth of the fact that he was fully God and fully human. But we want to try to nitpick it and whittle it away and do all those kinds of things. And I believe Jesus go, you just don't know the scriptures or the power of God and what you're doing. Well, leave that alone. But I want to take it another angle instead. You do not know the Scriptures. You do not know the power of God. That we would become more and more aware of how often the Scriptures describe themselves as the power to transform lives. And we understand the power of God to transform the lives that we have. We In so many of our studies that we've done on Sunday morning, like when we were in 2 Corinthians, like we, when we've been in the prophets, when we've, what we've seen in Exodus, what we've seen when we go even further back, like in the Gospel of John, so many of our studies, you are having statements made by God about the power of God to transform lives. Soon we'll get into Hebrews far enough where we get out to chapter 4 where you talk about the Word of God being alive and active and more powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword that's able to divide even between soul and spirit and joint and marrow. I mean, here is this powerful transforming tool that God has. That God has the power to change lives. And so often I think it is easy for us to underestimate the power that God is able to accomplish. One of my favorite passages that speaks to that, I don't have time to, to, to flesh it out this morning. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 begins with a call for all peoples to come to him. All who are thirsty, come to me and drink. Why do you labor for bread that's not bread? It perishes, trying to give you 
basically the real bread and true living water. And then he suddenly in in verses uh, 3 and 4 starts talking about David. And he says, you know, I made David a leader of peoples, a commander and a witness. You ever thought about that idea? Think about when you first encounter David in the scriptures. Who is he? Is he anybody of great renown? Is he just notable and powerful and everybody's like, oh yeah, David, he's awesome. We can't wait for him to be king one day because we can tell his dad, Jesse, he really groomed him. He's going to be something. (laughs) One of my favorites is, okay, Samuel's going to come anoint a king and Jesse's going to get all his boys together. And you remember, Jesse leaves out one. (laughs) Here's all my boys. And Samuel goes, no, no, no. Okay, God said I'm supposed to anoint one of your sons, and it's not any of these. There's got to be somebody else around here. Ah, you mean that guy tending the sheep out there? Okay, I'll call him. His own dad didn't think he was going to be anything. (laughs) We're talking about kings. It's not David. It's got to be one of these other boys. And God goes, look what I made him. Made him commander and ruler and king. That's what Isaiah 55 identifies. Is Look what I did with him. Look what I made him. And that's, that, uh, that passage, that prophecy ends in talking about his own people of how he was going to transform them. That's why you're supposed to come to him. Come and get the food that he has to offer. Come and enjoy the drink that he has to offer because he can change you. There is the power of God to change your life. And so often I think we come into God and we just think, well, God can't change anything. And yet one of the most astounding things that God does is think about how often He changes selfish, self-centered sinners like us and turns us into holy, God-centered people. It's an amazing transformation. You think about where we start in this journey that we go on of how God is molding us and changing us through His Word, through suffering and trials. He's constantly molding us and refining us. This is the power of God. I think so often what happens is we just sit back and we think, well, God can't change my life. And I would would respond to that by saying, we don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. The Scriptures are over and over again saying that you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another into the image of His Son, 2 Corinthians 3. There's this transformation process of being made holy like in 1 Peter 1 and 2 where we're being built up into living stones. Here God is taking us and using us and transforming us. Do we think of our lives in that way? Do we think about how God can change those things? Maybe you're not like me in this, but I have the tendency to think that you are. But are you able to look back in your life, however far back you need to go, and you think about whatever circumstances your life may have been in, however dark, however difficult, however hopeless it may have seemed, And you thought your life wouldn't be changed. You thought things wouldn't get any better. It was just, you know, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. This is the the worst and it's never going to get any better. And just 
think about how God has transformed you and transformed those circumstances and transformed other people in your life to bring you where you are today. We forget the transforming power of God and His Word. And we we just simply don't see the Scriptures that are telling us God's changing you. The reason you're going through suffering is He's refining you. He's putting you in the fire. He's testing your faith. He's building you up. He's making you stronger. He's getting you ready for glory. And we forget that that's the power of God to change us. It's an amazing thing of what God does. And sometimes we just have to sit back and reflect like Isaiah 55 does and just says, you know, think about David. Look where he started. Look where he ended. Look at what God did in his life. You can think about with so many people. Look at Abraham. Look where he started. Look where he ended. Look at Jacob. Look at where that guy started. What a terrible guy. Look where he ends. You can do that over and over again. I like Judah. Judah's a terrible, terrible individual. Son of Jacob. Look where he ends. Over and over again that happens. What God can do to transform lives. Are we not astounded by King Manasseh? Worst of the worst, right? Look where he ends. Repentant before God. God can change lives. So often what we do in our lives is we stop right here in this moment and we go, it can't get any better. God can't do anything. He can't change my life. He can't change me. He can't change other people around me. This is the darkness that I'm in. It's never going to get any better. And I just ask you to think about how many times God has solved that again and again and changed you and changed your circumstances and made things completely different. God has the power to do that. And it's so interesting to me, the Sadducees think, I've got this question that puts God in a box. I can keep God from working. He doesn't have an answer for this one. I'd like for you to ask yourself if there's something you come to Jesus that way and you go, okay, well, God can't fix this. He can can absolutely change everything. And God has certainly done that in my life. If I had time, I wish I could express to you how often God has changed my life and changed my course of events radically uh, over and over again. And it's just amazing what God is able to do, that we would rely upon God in that way. So now hold these two pieces in mind. Our previous point, you're made in the image of God. You belong to God. And now he talks to the Sadducees and he says, you underestimate the power of God. You don't really know the scriptures at all and you don't really know the power of God. Now watch this final scene. In this discussion with the Sadducees, verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one, with, with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is most important of all? Don't you almost get this picture of like this is an assembly line of testing Jesus? All right, first we have the Pharisees and the Herodians and they fail. Well, they were right in the wings with the Sadducees and they come up and ask him. And now this scribe, and now we immediately read scribe, we kind of go, uh-oh, here's another, here's another one who's coming to test Jesus. And so he comes up here, which commandment is the most important of all? Verse 29. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I want you to just consider the scene here before we get going. 
So here's the scribe. What's the most important commandment? Jesus just quotes Scripture at him. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Leviticus 19. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now watch what happens here, verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that He is one and there is no other beside Him. And to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as self is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is interesting. This man comes up to him and goes, all right, what do you think is the greatest commandment? And he goes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes... That's the conclusion I had drawn too. <laughs> he says, to love Him with the heart and love Him with understanding and love your neighbor yourself is much more than all the burnt offerings and all the sacrifices. Look at Jesus' response, verse 34. And we in Jesus saw that He answered wisely. He said to Him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. We shut the assembly line of questions down. Nobody's going to ask him another question. That's three for three. And Jesus goes, all right, you ain't going to answer anymore. Loving the Lord your God. Now think about this under the even the Old Testament law of Moses framework. Love the Lord your God and loving neighbor as yourself is more important, much more important than offering all the burnt sacrifices that one could offer. Here is the scribe and he understands something that when we go through the Old Testament, sometimes we wonder, did anybody understand this? And here's an answer of yes, people did. God has always wanted people's hearts. God has always wanted that. That has always been God's call. That is the basis for all of life. Coming to the Lord is not about, okay, just give me this list. Give me me a piece of paper with all the list of things I need to do, and then I'm going to be okay. That's not what God's ever intended. It's never looked that way. The basis of life is loving God with all of your heart. And what you're seeing in each of these events as each story comes along is to try to show when we would come to Jesus not being blinded by dishonesty or pride or hypocrisy or whatever obstacle there is in our way, we would be able to clearly see who Jesus is. And so often we don't see what's really hindering us. We don't see that we have these roadblocks in the way keeping us from truly understanding who God is. The reason why this scribe is considered close to the kingdom of God is because he's understanding the very nature of God. What does God desire? God desires for us to love Him with every bit of our being. And that love for God would flow to everybody that would be in our circle of influence and in our circle of acquaintances and circle of friends, people that we know, that love would just extend to God and all that we would meet. This man gets it. So Jesus, how, how rare does Jesus say, boy, you're right there. 
especially in Jerusalem, where all we see are people who are nowhere near, this one scribe comes up and goes, I'm tracking with you on this. I'm seeing where you're going. And Jesus goes, you're right. If you would just love me with all of your heart. Let's pull these three things together. And ask the question, why are people rejecting Jesus? What is Mark framing for us to understand this morning? I submit to you this is often hard to accept. But I believe this is the vision that Mark is painting in these these events, these accounts. Is the reason that people do not accept Jesus, the reason that people reject Him, is because ultimately they do not want to give their whole life to Him. If we would just kind of strip away all the peripherals, and kind of swim through to the core of the matter. If we could kind of get through the excuses and get through the problems and things that people say, and let's just get right down to the core of it. The core of it is this. We don't want to give our very being and our whole lives to God. We do not accept that we are made in the image of God and what that ultimately means for our lives. We were made in the image of God. And you could probably end the Bible right there and that would have summed up the whole. He made you in His image. You belong to Him. (laughs) That, That settles it right there. That's the flow of all humanity going forward. He made you. He has rights over you. He has all the business in the world of saying here's what is right and here's what is wrong. Here's how to live and here's how not to live. He has every right to do that. You were made in His image. Why do we reject Jesus? Because we don't like that. We don't want to submit to Him. We don't want to recognize that we were made in His image and that we belong to Him. We reject that. We shake our fist at it. We want to be who we want to be. I want to do what I want to do. And don't tell me what to do. And God's saying, I made you. And to me, it echoes my Father. I brought you into this world and I'll take you out of this world. And God has every right to just go, you know, I I own you. I made you. You're in my image. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that you're made in the image of God. And He desires to be with you. And that's why He acts the way that He does toward us. Why do people reject Jesus? It's because we don't want to truly come to know Him. Ultimately, that's the big deal. I don't want to give my life to Him and understand the heart of God and understand what He's come to do. To really see that God has the power to transform our lives. If we would just give it over to Him. He made us in His image. Would we understand that He has the power to take these broken lives, these sinful lives, these lives that we have wrecked and damaged, and transform them? Whether we've wrecked them ourselves or our our past and upbringing was a disaster and we started off behind the eight ball and we got an unfair deck. There's a lot of people in Scriptures who got a lot of unfair decks and you see what God did to change them. God can do amazing things with broken people. In fact, have we not recognized that that's exactly what God wants as broken people? Blessed are the poor in spirit. God wants people coming to Him and saying, 
I'm a mess. I'm broken. I can't do this myself. I need your help. I need your transformation. That's exactly what God wants. God does not want people who would come and say, well, I do this and I do this and I'm not that bad and I'm pretty good and you'd be good to have me on your team, right? But people like the scribe who just say, loving the Lord my God and loving my neighbor myself is the big deal to the whole thing. Because when I see that I'm made in His image, that He has the power to transform my life, the response is supposed to be an overwhelming display of love for Him. That's what God is looking for. I I am always amazed, and the more I get to study this, to see over and over again, that God never comes along and says you know if you get your life right and figure yourself out I'll love you and do good things by you but you got to figure yourself out what you have God always doing is saying okay I'm going to do something really amazing so that you'll love me and you'll see my power and you'll see my glory and I'll change your life And you see that over and over again as God comes to Israel and God comes to His people and says, will you trust me? Will you believe me? I'll change you. And I'm going to show you this love. And all the prophets come along and say, one day, like we've seen in Ezekiel, one day God's going to do something that's going to cause people to obey His statutes and follow His ways. What's He going to do? And the answer is not He doesn't come along and say, okay, I hope you guys figure it out. And if you guys figure it out soon enough, I might send my son for you. He says, okay, you're sinners, you're wretched, you're helpless. I'm going to send my son and I want that to win your heart so that you'll follow me and serve me. But God cares about you so much that He made you in His image and though we've broken the image, He's redeeming that image. He sends His son so that we could belong back to Him. And that is supposed to cause our utmost devotion to Him. Can I end it by just saying this? It's supposed to change us from asking the question, what do I have to do for God into what can I do? That question determines where you're at. If you're looking at God and it's like, well, do I have to? Then you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You just haven't accessed it yet. I'm just going to be blunt with you. You haven't accessed it yet. You're still looking at it in terms of what is the list of requirements of things that I need to do so that I can stay away from hell and get on into heaven by the skin of my teeth. That's the way you're looking at it. And what God is trying to do is win your heart and say, I made you. I gave you my son. I poured out my love to you. And I'm looking for you to respond from the heart I'll change your life I can take you from being a nothing and make you a something in the kingdom of God to be spiritual stones that are built up into that kingdom or to use the end of Isaiah 55 I'll take these briars and brambles and make you a cypress I'll change your life Jesus came to Jerusalem with the offer that I'll change your life 
Here is the king who has come to rescue and has come to save. Why do they reject him? Because they have no interest in those changes. They have no interest in having Jesus be their leader, savior, ruler, and king. They have no interest in recognizing that they were made in the image of God and they must give their lives to him. They have no interest in turning what they're doing away from simply following some rules to loving the Lord their God with all of their heart. They have no interest. I want to challenge your heart today. Where are you in your walk with God? Is it a love for God that says, what can I do for Him because of all He's done for me? And if you're not there yet, we want to help you get there. I want you to see the power of God and the power of the Scriptures. And what God is doing is changing lives for His glory. We want to help you do that. Can we help you do that? You can let one of us know if you need that help. We'd love to study with you and meet with you to do that. If you're not a Christian, if you have not given your life to Jesus, turned away from sins, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, today is the day. Today is a great day to turn your life back to God and to serve Him faithfully and love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can we help you? Why don't you come now while we stand and while we sing?